Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this first night of spring, have we forgotten how to hang out these days? Because we're so tied to our devices, planning every minute of our lives. And if so, what can we do to fix it? The author of Hanging Out, The Radical Art of Killing Time, joins me to explain. Controversy erupted over the weekend again after the San Jose Sharks goalie James Reimer refused to take part in the team's Pride Night event, including wearing a Pride-themed jersey for warm-ups. He cited his religious beliefs. He's not the first player to do so. But how should the league and franchises deal with that kind of dissent? How should the rest of us view it? As we mark the first day of spring, we take a look at the federal political landscape after a tough winter for Justin Trudeau and the Liberals that also sees Conservatives and Pierre Polyev not able to take full advantage of those stumbles. So, So what explains that and what could the coming months in federal politics look like? But first, spring is certainly a time for new beginnings. How can we take advantage of that spring in our step to make some durable, positive changes in our lives? The author of How to Change, The Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be, joins us to talk about that. uh, It felt felt like spring where I am over the weekend, at least. It was warm and it was sunny, at least on Saturday. And it puts that little spring in your step, right? It's always nice to uh, to welcome spring in. Now, of course, having grown up uh, in Montreal, I didn't really experience much of spring when I was young. It was only about a two-week period we used to refer to as melt in Montreal, between the time it was sort of very cold and the time it started to get pretty warm. Uh, so living on the West Coast, you actually get to see spring a little bit, and that's nice. Uh, I wasn't used to those seasons. So, uh, yeah, the vernal equinox. Spring began today at 5.24 p.m. Eastern. So 1.24 out here on the West Coast and uh, 4.24 in Alberta and so on and so forth. The good news was today that right across the country, it was relatively warm. Uh, My condolences to folks in Saskatchewan and Manitoba where it was still pretty cold. I think it's about minus 8, minus 9 tonight still. And it's still staying below freezing for the rest of the week. But it looks like... A little bit of relief is on the way. The hottest place in Canada today was Ashcroft in BC, 13.4 Celsius. That's nice. Coldest place was in uh, Nunavut, Sanarajak, minus 34.1. So it wouldn't have felt like uh, spring there at all. But as I was mentioning, this was the weekend where I actually put my winter coats away. You always try to do that. You know, it was a bit of a, may have been a brave move, but I'm, I'm going to take that brave move this year. And people were out having a good time. So that was also nice to see. So here we are at the beginning of spring, new season. And of course, that means that uh, you could put a little little spring in your step. It's the time of rebirth, at least nature-wise. You see the flowers coming up, the buds on the trees. It's that time of year, right? It's also a time of year where we can make changes, you know, not just New Year's resolutions and so on, but spring feels like a really nice time when you emerge from that winter hibernation that we all know so well to, uh, you know, spring on the right foot, so to speak, and make some habit changes, perhaps. And I was thinking over the weekend, as I was putting away the winter coats and doing all that stuff, and maybe doing a little beginnings of spring cleaning and all the things that you tend to do when the weather starts to get nice again, and the days get longer, um, that This would be something interesting to look into tonight. How do you get off to the right start on spring? And uh, my next uh, next guest has written an entire book about it called How to Change. It really looks at something called Fresh Starts. And again, so no one better to answer that question tonight than Katie Milkman. She's a professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. She's author of a really great book called How to Change, The Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. 
And I thought tonight, you know what, let's just revel in this first day of spring a little bit. We won't talk politics. We won't talk anything international. We'll just talk about spring and how to get off on the right foot. And Katie Wilkman joins us now. Katie, thank you. Happy first day of spring and happy Monday. Indeed. So, I mean, you talk a lot about the whole idea of uh, sort of fresh starts and a Monday representing the first day of spring feels like a pretty good one. But spring puts an extra spring into our step, doesn't it? It does. I love this fresh start. It has so much beauty associated with it, right? All of the visuals are really about rebirth. All of the the ways that we associate spring with new beginnings are extra strong. And that's what drives the fresh start effect generally. But but it's just perfect for spring compared to the start of summer, the start of winter, the start of fall, the, the start of spring has all the goodies baked in to make it feel fresh. It does, because sometimes New Year's, like New Year's Eve, New Year's Day feels a bit forced because everything is sort of sort of the same outside, but you've sort of given yourself these new goals that you want to meet because the calendar year has changed. Whereas sometimes I was out for a walk over the weekend. In the spring, you actually feel it re, you know, rebirth around you and it sort of spurs you to wanting to do it. But there are some important first steps when it comes to wanting to make changes, sort of take on good things to honor the time of year we find ourselves in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I started studying fresh starts because uh, New Year's are so prominent in our mind. And I thought it'd be really interesting to look at whether there were other moments in time that had a similar impact on the way we think and the way we behave when it comes to goal pursuit. And I love the start of spring because it's actually one that most people don't take advantage of. Most people aren't sort of thinking about what will my first day of spring resolutions be. And yet in research studies we've run repeatedly, we find that when we call people's attention to the first day of spring and the opportunity it presents to set goals, just like New Year's, it's very powerful. So it resonates, but it's not yet a cultural icon the way that New Year's is for this purpose. So I think it has, it has a lot of extra potential as a result. Yeah. And, and again, it's a Monday, which is another kind of cool fresh start day as well. Um, tell me a bit about the whole idea of of the fresh start, because I think all of us, uh, you know, all of us look at the way we, well, there's all little things we'd like to change. Maybe some people have some big things they like to change, and then you try to get, motivate yourself to actually do it. And that's never simple. But sometimes these little extra, you know, the, the New Year's resolution or the first day of spring could be that precursor to doing something you want to do. Yeah, well, what we found in our research, and this is work with um, Heng Chen Dai at UCLA in particular, uh, is that at moments that feel like new beginnings in our lives, we are more motivated to pursue our goals. So those can be Mondays, they can be the start of a new year, um, they can be the start of a new month, uh, the celebration of a birthday, there are certain holidays we associate with new beginnings, and the start of spring, if it's drawn to our attention, is certainly a new beginning. So at those moments, what happens is we feel like there's a discontinuity in, in life. So think about New Year's. That's one that most people will be able to resonate with. At that the start of a new year, we can look back and say, you know, there's a chapter break here. It's a new beginning, a new year. Last year, that was the old me. The old me didn't get around to, you know, quitting smoking or getting in shape or getting my finances in order, but the new me will be different. So the the separation it gives us makes us feel um, more optimistic about the future. And and likewise, if you draw attention to it, the start of spring has a lot of that baked in. It feels like a new beginning. It's the start of a new season. You can say, you know, well, the winter was cold and, and it was a terrible time to be focused on my goals, but, it you know, everything's blooming and blossoming and new and I'm going to get to start wearing different clothes and it's just a perfect moment to change right it so is. 
So fresh starts have that magic dissociation with our past failures and the sense of optimism they bring with them. Yeah, I, I guess the the best example that we bake in every year is the spring cleaning, right? Like we clean out after, after the winter. That's sort of one that's fit around this season that that we all do. There are ways to uh, take advantage of this and there are ways not to, right? There are ways to approach this that work and ways to approach this that don't, regardless of what you're set off date happens to be the first day of spring, New Year's, New Year's Day. Yes. So most of these fresh starts, if they are, if you, you you note them on your calendar, you say, okay, I'll set some goals. You don't get very far, right? Everybody knows about the New Year's resolutions that fail, but there's a science to achieving goals more successfully. And a few things that I would just highlight for listeners that they can do if they want to seize the moment and take advantage of this fresh start of spring and try to achieve more. Well, first, you know, you have to set a goal, right? Goal setting actually helps. So what is the goal? Ideally, it's not vague and and distant, like I want to get in shape, but it's more concrete, like I'm going to start um, going to the gym three times a week. And then ideally, you know, you want to plan out when are you going to do it? So you might say Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday at five o'clock. I will get in a workout at the gym around the corner from my house uh, right after work. So the more you make those plans concrete, the dates and times laid out, even how you'll get there, what you'll do, and you want to make them bite size. So you notice I was talking about sort of what I was going to do on a weekly basis instead of a a yearly basis or the whole season of spring, say. Bite-sized goals are much more achievable. If somebody's invited to start saving $5 a day versus $150 a month, it's actually exactly the same invitation, but we see dramatically more adoption when it's that bite-sized $5 a day. Really? Funny um, how that works. Funny how that works. Is it just, just, just psychological? It's just, is it just, it's just your brain telling you it's just how we figure things out? Bite-sized goals feel more doable. It's something that I can achieve. It doesn't feel like a massive accomplish. You know, it's not a massive thing I'm going to have to set aside or think about. We did an experiment with volunteers who had committed to volunteering 200 hours a year with an organization that they cared about, and we experimented with just saying that means you know that's four hours a week and reminding them four hours a week uh, as opposed to some hours every week to get to their 200 hour yearly goal. And we also saw this huge change. We saw about eight percent more volunteering when we broke it up into that bite-sized goal of four hours a week. So whether it's your savings, your volunteering, the effort you're going to put in to getting in shape, thinking about the the yeah. bite-sized component, it's no longer daunting. It feels approachable. Katie, you talked a lot about, about a couple of things, obstacles, recognizing obstacles to what stands in your way is a really good one. And uh, and having fun with stuff too, like not making it too, 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 too onerous on, on yourself if you're trying to achieve something. Yeah, I love that you brought that up because I I had sort of before the break was laying out some basics of how do you, you know, set basic goals, make them bite size, make a plan. But one of the things that we often neglect is that we tend not to persist at our goals if it's miserable to pursue them. Um, Most people don't appreciate this when they're thinking about the best way to achieve a goal. They look for the most efficient and direct path to get to that goal. You know, whether it's if it's getting in shape, what's the, you know, maximally punishing uh, exercise machine I can hop on at the gym in order to get fit. But what Ayelet Fishbach at the University of Chicago and Caitlin Woolley at Cornell University have shown is that that is a mistake. Even though it's the norm to think about efficiency, people actually do better when they Instead, focus on how can I make it enjoyable to pursue my goal? And when people are randomly assigned to get encouragement to pursue goals in a fun way, they keep at them for longer. So 
the barrier there, and it is really important to think about the barrier so you can make sure you solve for them is if it's miserable, we won't persist. And most goals require persistence. So actually thinking not about the short term, like what's the most, you know, how can I make the most progress in the next hour towards my goal, but rather the long term, you know, how am I going to keep myself engaged with this goal over the next six months yields better results. It focuses you more on, you know, maybe I'm not going to get on the maximally punishing Stairmaster. I'm going to take a Zumba class with a friend. I'm going to like it and I'm going to keep wanting to come. And that is ultimately what matters so often, but we neglect that. Durable habits, I think, is the was the word that you use, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. We want to create durability. And P.S., that's the big problem with fresh starts like the start of spring. They give us this boost of motivation and excitement on one day, but tomorrow it's no longer the first day of spring. <laughs> and so, sure. what you know, what are you going to set in place so that it hooks you forward and keeps you on a path that's going to create durable change? And I guess you do have to appreciate, I mean, if you do stick to something, I think one of the, and you pointed it out, I mean, if you don't go for the most arduous way of doing something, you know, the Stairmaster at max or whatever it is, the results you see are slower. So you don't see that same change. But if you if you develop it as a durable habit, by this time next spring, uh, you may be able to look back and think, wow, how much have I accomplished in one short year? Absolutely. Focusing on that durability as your goal rather than the burst, I think is really important and thinking about what might keep you from sticking to something so that you can actually design solutions that are, are tailored made to the kinds of obstacles you face, whether it's, this is going to be painful, so I'm not going to keep at it, or I'm likely to forget it's not going to be top of mind anymore next week. So how am I going to set up solutions to ensure that this is uh, something that I'm remembering to do consistently. There's a lot of different barriers that can get in the way. Maybe my social circumstances, my, the, you know, the group of people I'm spending time with is not supportive of this set of habits. So maybe I need to actually try to make a couple of friends who want to go with me to the gym so that, that I have social support that I need. What are those barriers? And then try to patch them. Maybe it's confidence and you need to figure out how are you going to boost your confidence in your capacity. Yeah. And, and I guess if for the, I mean, you're in Philadelphia, but for those of us who are in Northern parts of the world, spring really does offer that opportunity to go, to go out and do things. I mean, that's, it's more of the activity side of things I think that really, really spur us in spring. So I guess the, the right way to approach it is to take advantage of the, of the impetus that the first day of spring gives you all that rebirth around you, but to go slow, small bites, as you said, give yourself some, recognize your obstacles, try to, try to be good to yourself. Try not to be, try not to do it all at once. Yeah, absolutely. You're you're going you're, you know, think of any kind of goal you're trying to pursue, most of them are more like a marathon rather than a sprint. And so, you know, what what makes that what's going to make it enjoyable? So you're going to want to keep doing it 3 weeks from now. That's really important to keep in mind. It's funny how um, I mean, not that it sounds basic, but the, how much about change is recognized and how little we do the things we're how how much we recognize how to change and how often we don't actually follow that advice. Yeah, I agree with that. It, a lot of this is intuitive. You know, there are some sort of fun and interesting and surprising findings that can really help. I'll, I'll mention um, one that I particularly love. It turns out when you coach others on how to achieve your own goals, you you agree to mentor actually helps you achieve them yourself at a higher right. rate. So coaching others helps us. Another thing that I think is a little less intuitive than some of the findings um, is that when we have something that feels like a chore and we're struggling with it, we can do what I call temptation bundling. So you can find something that's a temptation or a lure, something you want to do less of and only let yourself enjoy it when you are doing that chore. So might be you only get to binge watch your favorite TV show while you're exercising at the gym or your right. favorite 
podcast you can only enjoy when you're doing household chores. Yeah, that's, that, I, that's I watch, another counter. I watch, I watch true crime videos while I iron. <laughs> perfect. perfect. <laughs> Except those, you just know? don't burn yourself. No, exactly. <laughs> During a really intense moment. <laughs> Sounds slightly dangerous. Exactly. Uh, Katie Milkman, thank you so much. Happy first day of spring. Happy first day of spring. Well, we're marking the first hours of spring tonight. Always a nice time of the year. The vernal equinox. We're about five hours into it. And we're talking about the different things. In the last half hour, we talked about how to use spring to springboard yourself into some good habits. I was talking about being out on the weekend and just how nice it was. I also noticed, and I'm sure everyone else will too, there are more for sale signs up all of a sudden uh, housing signs than there had been in quite some time. We always associate spring with that bounce back after a usually dormant winter in the housing market. Now that was, I mean, I think that's been especially true this year as far as the dormant winter market was concerned, eight consecutive interest rate hikes from the Bank of Canada, uh, plus the associated uh, hikes in mortgage rates, pushed a lot of potential uh, buyers out of the market. A lot of sellers were waiting on the sidelines to see if that big drop in prices we've seen over the past uh, six months to a year would stop or maybe reverse. Housing prices have fallen 19% nationally since their peak a year ago. They're still up considerably since 2019. So it's by no means affordable out there. So you sort of have this strange situation where housing prices are still pretty high if you're trying to get into the market. The rate of cost of borrowing is way up. If you own a house and want to buy something bigger or different or nicer, then that's still really expensive. So it feels like everyone's been kind of frozen in place for a little while. But that being said, I did notice more for sale signs out uh, this weekend, at least while, while I was walking around. Um, Again, 19% nationally housing prices have dropped since a year ago, and owners and investors are not really putting their homes on the market. So buyers don't have a lot of choice. Folks, again, who want to move up the property ladder uh, are also looking at some affordability issues. So what could spring bring? Spring is usually the time of the year where the housing market starts to really blossom again, right? But we have all these different things going on. There's certainly some financial worries right now. We talked about this last week uh, because of fragility in the banking system that could perhaps see central banks drop interest rates sooner than they, we thought they would. So our buyers going to wait for that? Our sellers going to see what happens to prices before that happens? We don't really know. So we thought we would find out what does, after such a strange few years in the housing market, what does spring 2023, what could it hold? Penelope Graham is Director of Content at RateHub.ca, and she joins us now from Toronto. Penelope, thank you so much. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, springtime always strikes, I think everyone thinks housing, right? It, it, mm -hmm. You know, the, the market tends to, to do interesting things in the spring. But just to set the table, what kind of winter did we have? You know, there's been a significant downturn in the housing market, not just over the past winter, but really over the past 12 months. And of course, that correlates quite closely with the rate hiking cycle we've seen from the Bank of Canada. Uh, so as the, the cost of borrowing has gone up, that's really whittled away at purchasing power for home buyers. And it really has rapidly turned market sentiment, both on the buyer and seller side. You know, so we've seen some really steep year over year declines. And these most recent numbers that we got in the other week from uh, the Canadian Real Estate Association uh, for February 
they are still reflecting some very deep uh, year-over-year differences. But what we're really focusing on is there was a month-over-month uptick of 2.3% in terms of sales from January. That could be a hint that we are on track for a more seasonal, busy spring market, and perhaps that the impact of those rate hikes are starting to fade. Yeah, because if we look at what's happened, I, I gather, I mean, first of all, year over year is probably the operative word here, because if you look at prices, even mm-hmm. though interest rates are significantly higher than they were before the pandemic, if you look at prices, they're still pretty high compared to where they were in 2019. Yeah, that's correct. So affordability criteria is still really, really steep. So speaking of the average price, you know, looking at it year over year, it has come down. It's down 18.9%. But from a national perspective, we're still looking at an average of over 660,000. And of course, you know, in markets like Toronto and Vancouver, you're looking at considerably higher. You're looking at averages up, you know, in that upper uh, $800,000 mark. So, you know, affordability is, is still pretty steep. But going back to, you know, that year over year look, what's really important to note here is we now know that last February was actually the market's peak in terms of sales, and it was an all-time high for that average national home price. And that has really been fueled by that pandemic era demand, which we now know in of itself was an anomaly. And at the time, that was in a record low interest rate environment. So when you fast forward to today, we have a market that has since absorbed those eight interest rate increases in the span of 12 months. And as I mentioned before, you know, it's had a very drastic impact on uh, buyer and seller sentiment, purchasing power. And, you know, we're we're comparing um, a benchmark price of borrowing of 0.25% last year with 4.5% today. Uh, So the difference is really, really steep. But as those rate hikes kicked off last March, we now know that this is going to be the last month where we're comparing that pre and post rate hike environment. So in the months to come, uh, we should start to see the impact of those interest rate increases becoming apparent in the year over year data. And that'll give us a better big picture idea of how buyers have adapted. And uh, Korea itself has pointed out that there are a lot of similarities between today's market and what we were seeing pre-pandemic back in 2018 and 2019, where we did see a springtime recovery after a bit of a market slump. So, you know, all other things equal, we should start to see a bit of an uptick in the months to come. Yeah, it feels like things are slowly, you know, we also have, uh, because of problems within the banking sector, there's now speculation that perhaps uh, central banks will drop interest rates a little faster than one expected. But before we get into that, there, the, I, what's happened out there, I gather, is that sellers and buyers have both been just standing on the sidelines waiting for for some semblance of normalcy to come back because everyone was aware that eight consecutive interest rate hikes following the you know the height of the pandemic had created an atmosphere that was just that was almost too unpredictable for the average buyer or seller. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, we do know that there's a lot of pent up demand. Um, a lot of people got priced out because of the rising borrowing costs, and so that's really set a stage where. Any kind of uptick in demand is likely going to put upward pressure on home prices. Um, and another factor that Korea pointed out, and this is you know long since been the case, is the supply of homes for sale remains extremely tight. You know, there's not a lot out there. Um, you know, people who are in the market to buy right now don't have a lot of choice. And that contracted even further in February. So the number of new listings actually went down by nearly eight percent. 
And so that really is amping up competition. And Korea captures this in a metric called the sales to new listings ratio. And this helps determine whether a market is balanced or if you could call it a buyer's market or a seller's market. So if you've got a ratio between 40 and 60%, that's balanced. So the February ratio came in at 58.4%. And that shows that we're actually at the upper end of balanced and things are tightening up fast. And there's not a lot of room before we're actually going to be back in a seller's market environment again. Um, This is also the tightest that ratio has been since last April. Uh, So we really are on the precipice of seeing things get really competitive again, and uh, only take a lowering in mortgage rates to amp up that demand again. Yeah, I can imagine if, if in fact, uh, they've been held, right? So we saw them hold in the most recent Bank of Canada uh, update, they've held them at uh, 4.5. Mm-hmm. But if they start to drop, you're right, I would expect that there's, there's a lot of people, you get the sense that there's a lot of people who've been simply standing by, but more mm-hmm. buyers than sellers, more buyers on the sidelines than sellers on the sidelines. It's been a you know a little bit of both because sellers have recognized that the buyers just haven't been there. And they're, they're also still a little bit hung up on the prices that they could have gotten at the peak of the pandemic. Right. And this is a very classic catch-22 we see playing out in the market over and over. So sellers really are loath to take um, you know, a loss on their home, uh, especially if they purchased you know, within the last couple of years. Things have been really volatile. The market was you know, at a peak over the, the last couple of years. Uh, so if they themselves purchased during that timeline, they're not really looking to list in today's conditions when they're they're, they're very unlikely to even break even. You know, we always come back to housing tends to be, uh, you know, a much longer horizon investment to to really get your value and to spread that risk out over time. But, you know, as, as you mentioned, with mortgage rates potentially lowering in the months to come, uh, people who have been waiting are going to take advantage of any improved affordability. Um, and so, you know, assuming that the economic trends that we've we've seen play it over the past couple of weeks, if they continue, uh, we will likely see rates going down and and home prices and demand picking back up. If you look at, look at the uh, one of the few of the trends out there that I thought were interesting, Penelope, were a lot of local buyers b- back driving their their local markets for a while. There, it looked like people from all over the place were buying homes, sort of far outside cities and so on. But now it looks like locals are really driving their own markets, which is interesting. And uh, and, and maybe just maybe we may find that sweet spot between affordability and interest rates at some point. But it doesn't feel like we're there yet. Yeah, we're, we're, we haven't really achieved equilibrium as of yet, but you are correct. You know, during the pandemic, we saw a huge surge of buyers who were looking further afield uh, in terms of, of where to buy a home because there was greater affordability, uh, you know, on the outer banks of the, of the suburbs. And that really drove home prices in some of these peripheral markets. You know, when you look at markets like the city of Toronto proper, right. uh, yes, there's there's been price volatility. Yes, there's been a decline in sales, but to a lesser extent than the swings that we're seeing, for example, in the Durham region or in the York region. Um, that's where we're really seeing some very steep declines. So those double digit, uh, you know, uh, declines in in home prices. Now that the um, demand fundamentals are starting to normalize again, you know, the lockdowns are over. People are no longer looking to purchase outside of city centers. If prior they, you know, were, were centered there, people are starting to return back to the office. Um, the virtual um, work environments are not as common, and and all of this is playing back into demand for city centers and downtown cores. You know, is as strong as it it really has ever been. 
And when we look at prices in general, I mean, I think there was this expectation. I mean, that's what's been so odd looking at it from the outside is that I think there was an expectation when interest rates started to climb, given mm-hmm. the huge jump in the value of homes or, or at least the sale price of homes uh, during the height of the pandemic, that there was this idea that maybe we would see some sort of crash. And I think we've seen a decline, but we certainly didn't see anything like the bottom falling out of the housing market, allowing a bunch of people who weren't able to afford houses before back into the market. Yeah. And, you know, when you you come down to is the bottom in for prices, that's what everyone wants to know. Right. Or, of course. Yeah. Are, are things going to fall even further? And it really does come back down to that supply and demand imbalance. You know, it's it's pretty classic. But as I mentioned, there's a lot of pent up demand. Uh, so if we do start to see the cost of borrowing tick back down, it's not likely that we're going to see further softening in, in home prices. But, you know, of course, nobody has a crystal ball. No. And of course, you know, there's been a lot of volatility, uh, you know, in the in, in the financial markets over the past two two weeks. Uh, you know, we've seen um, some growing fears of the banking sector instability. We've seen a couple of U.S. regional banks default. You know, we're seeing central banks suddenly having a shift in narrative over what they might be doing in terms of monetary policy uh, in the next few months to come. And that is really key when it comes to mortgage rates. So, of course, the Bank of Canada they stated back in January that they would likely commit to holding uh, their trend-setting interest rate. And then, you know, they doubled down on that in March. They did, in fact, hold it. But what is really interesting right now is what's going on with the U.S. Federal Reserve, so the American counterpart to our central bank. Uh, so they're going to be having their interest rate announcement on uh, the 21st and 22nd of this week. And it's very likely that they're going to be influenced by what is going on globally with the banking sector. So analysts have been changing their calls. Uh, you know, prior to all of this happening, it was quite baked in that the Fed would probably have to hike by another half point and perhaps more to come this year. Um, and that's because their fight against inflation still remains pretty steep. CPI in the U.S. has has been a little bit more persistent than it has in Canada. But now that has really changed to either a quarter point increase or perhaps no increase at all. The the Fed might be forced to hold given all the volatility that's going on. So that in turn is going to influence the Bank of Canada to an extent. Uh, It actually supports their rate hold mandate. So if you are a variable rate mortgage borrower in Canada, going to be stability for your interest rate and your payments. So if you're a mortgage shopper right now, you know, you really want to be comparing. You really want to see if the lender that you're going with is implementing, you know, these potential discounts. Mortgage brokers can really help kind of decipher who is offering what. But yeah, it's it's important to be an informed consumer when the market is volatile like it is today. And any any thoughts about what the spring might look like this year? Uh, now that you've you've laid it all out there, what 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 should what should we expect? Do you think in the next uh, next three or four months? Well, I think, you know, if everything plays out the way that we anticipate and mortgage rates continue to be stable or even perhaps a little bit lower, uh, we are going to see an uptick in demand. Um, You know, that sales to new listings ratio is likely going to get even higher and tighter. And that's when you start to see factors and scenarios play out like those bidding wars coming back. Um, You know, multiple offer situations, uh, people dropping conditions from their offers. Although, you know, it's still quite early and uh, things things are still quite volatile so it remains to be seen but if current economic factors play out the way that they have you know we we could anticipate that happening
Yeah, perhaps a cautious step back into some of the, what we had seen, uh, you know, two years ago, right, where there was was more bidding, but certainly now people more much more cautious about making sort of offers without sight unseen or no inspections and so on. So I wonder if we'll find a bit of a balance in there. Penelope Graham, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You know what came back to life today? MPs at Parliament. They were back in the House of Commons after a bit of a break and sparring, of course, over China's alleged interference in our federal elections took center stage once again. The latest battle, and this one's been going on for a while, uh, surrounds the opposition trying to get the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, Katie Telford, to testify at committee about what she knew regarding warnings about China's interference from Canada's intelligence services, such as CSIS. The Liberals have been talking out the clock, filibustering, I guess, talking out the clock to prevent the House Affairs Committee from voting to call Katie, Katie Telford to appear. So in question period today, Tory Deputy Leader Melissa Lansman asked why Telford is not talking. The PM's chief of staff has appeared at parliamentary committees on numerous occasions to answer questions. She ran the campaign. She's campaign staff. What's the difference this time? What is the prime minister hiding? Well, there's there's a question for you, right? The Conservatives have introduced a motion in the House of Commons that, if passed, would force Telford to testify at said committee. Liberal House Leader Mark Holland says the Tories are playing partisan games. As we've offered David Johnson, an an, an independent, eminent Canadian, to look at this issue, what is their interest? It would appear to me, Mr. Speaker, that their interest is partisan in nature. Well, (laughs) it's a bit much, isn't it? I love how they keep using the word eminent whenever they refer to David Johnson, who, of course, is eminent. But we understand that there have been some concerns about the optics around his appointment. And essentially, the government's appointed someone to do to look into this for them. So the whole point of putting Telford up in front of the committee is that opposition MPs would get to ask questions, right? That's the point. Uh, Holland told reporters he's not ruling out turning that vote about Telford into a confidence vote that could potentially topple the minority government. It it won't. It won't. The NDP is not going to vote for it if it's a confidence vote. Um, They just, they can't. There's a provincial election coming up in Manitoba. There's a provincial election coming up in Alberta. The NDP have no money. They don't want to go to an election right now over this. But you can see the kind of parliamentary games that are playing out. All this comes at a time where things like affordability and this whole issue over China election interference are damaging the prime minister and the liberals. His approval rating has dropped six points since this whole election interference story blew up about a month ago. Maybe, um, And yet, and his party is stuck. I mean, they're stuck behind the conservatives at about 29% of voter intention. The, the polls have been hard to read because they're kind of all over the place. But the Liberals are very much marred in that early 30, late 20% area. And the Conservatives in some are up around 35%, which is you know good for them at this stage of the game. But when you look at the polls, something else odd is going on. Uh, the Prime Minister, his obviously his approval ratings are not great. Uh, but neither are Pierre Polyev's. There's a lot of sort of things out there to suggest that neither leader is particularly popular. In fact, both of them seem to alienate a lot of people. So the Conservatives are sort of, I think if you look at it, uh, the government is ripe for the picking right now. But the Conservatives are finding it difficult to make traction there. And part of it, of course, happens to be the likability of their leader. So a lot of people who really like Pierre Polyev, people who don't really don't, and we all know about Justin Trudeau, people who like Trudeau seem to like him no matter what, and those who despise him can't understand why anyone wouldn't. As my next guest put it, it is the story of two political leaders most likely to form government after the next federal election, outdoing themselves 
in the self-harm department. That person is Shachi Curl. She's president of the Angus Reed Institute, and she joins me now. Welcome back. Thanks for your time. Hey, Ben. My pleasure. So here we are in spring. Um, it's first spring. day of, first day <laughs> of the time of like rebirth, it. the time where everyone will be kind to each other on the federal scene. What kind of winter have we had? Because I feel like you're looking at the polling. The prime minister's approval ratings have plummeted. The opposition leader, Pierre Polyev's approval ratings are not good. Jugmeet Singh seems to have enjoyed a little bit of a balance, but I don't know that it impacts anything else. And the parties are mired where they were in the last federal election. So what's going on out there? It looks like everyone's just a little unhappy with everybody that they're, you know, none of the above. Well, I wrote a piece as I as I write uh, twice a month for the Ottawa Citizen, my my Saturday column for the Citizen on National Affairs, and I wrote that you know if this was a buddy movie, it would be Dumb and Dumber. If this was like Jane Austen, it would be these two just sort of dueling. But instead of when I say these two, Justin Trudeau and Pierre Polyev dueling, but instead of shooting at each other, they'd be shooting it at their own feet and hobbling themselves because we are in a very stuck place in Canadian politics, uh, despite a lot of stuff going on. You know, the fact that Canadians are, on one hand, so tired of this Liberal government and tired of the Prime Minister, and after eight years, frankly, that's not entirely surprising coming up on eight years. But at the same time, these these things, I always remind people, are, are never judged or decided in a vacuum, right? Come election time, the the ballot isn't Justin Trudeau or blank or no one. It's Justin Trudeau or, based on the polling the day, these days, Pierre Polyev. And people are looking at Polyev and going, uh-uh, not that guy either. Yeah, it's an odd time to find two leaders and also how divisive their popularity or unpopularity is, where it's so rooted in certain places. So you have a, a significant segment of the population who are convinced everyone hates the prime minister as much as they do. And another segment of the population who can't understand why the population doesn't like Pierre Polyev very much. It's been, it's an, we see the divisiveness within the electorate. I mean, we're not in elections, so there's a lot, a lot, long time to go here. But at least according to the polls, two very unpopular leaders, but unpopular with different people. Right. And so then we start talking about vote universes or demographics. Think about like, where do the people live who still have, call it more affection for the Trudeau liberals or at least more enmity towards the Poliev conservatives? You'll still find them in Canada's urban and suburban centers. So the Liberals still leading in Metro Vancouver, in the GA, in and around Montreal. Uh, in Quebec, it's it's a, really the, the Conservatives a distant third in, in a three-way race between the BQ, the Liberals, and the Conservatives. Uh, and then there's a huge gender divide, too, where women give a 20-point advantage in approval to Justin Trudeau over Pierre Polyev. Women look at Pierre Polyev and they just, something shrivels or shrinks or turns cold. It's just, it's it's not a good feeling. On the other hand, you look at the overall popular vote and the amount of intensity that people who support Pierre Polyev for have for him. People who are all in on him are really, really all in on him. And this is a, a leader and a party who, frankly, has been making some gains. He's just not into comfortable territory yet. And you're also starting to see Polyev pick up a little bit more in the likability department as he focuses more on issues that resonate with people. Uh, so things like cost of living, 
or talking about access to housing or some other issues. And of course, transparency and accountability. So you put all of that against the backdrop of what we've seen over the last eight weeks with the Liberals being absolutely bedeviled by issues around alleged interference from China and Canadian elections and just not being able to coherently answer questions on this, which has opened up a huge opportunity for the Conservatives. But every time the Conservatives look like they're gaining some steam or momentum, they kind of have their own moments of what the hell were you thinking? I point to examples such as Polyev's uh, inability to really punish MPs who met with uh, that AFD MP yeah, from, from Germany. Yeah. Chachi Kroll is president of the Angus Reid Institute. We're talking Canadian politics this half hour. And just where the polling has kind of been, it's been really interesting polling to watch because Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives should be taking full advantage of all the problems the Liberals have been having, particularly around the idea of election interference by China. At the same time, we see these big divides, gender divides, rural-urban divides, uh, provincial divides when it comes to likability for Pierre Polyev. The one thing I would say, though, uh, Shachi, is when I look at where he could improve, I feel like there's a lot more room to grow for Polyev and the Conservatives than there is for uh, for Trudeau and the Liberals. Like They're hanging on to what they've got, and Polyev could tone down his message, tailor it a bit better, and could actually take advantage of the situation here. And yet he doesn't. And I am I am continually surprised by that. You You see flashes of moments where you think, okay, He's starting to move enough towards, I don't want to call it the center, because how do you calibrate the center in Canada anymore in in terms of the political spectrum? But what I can tell you, Ben, is that there is 8 to 10% of Canadian voters who are continuing to vote Liberal, who would defect to the Conservatives if there was a leader they felt like they could get behind and who spoke to them and their values. And we saw this really clearly laid out last year during the Conservative leadership contest, where you had, as I say, that critical mass of 8 to 10% of, of Liberal voters who said, if Jean Charest wins, that's it, we're out of here, we're defecting tomorrow. And yeah. yet, what what do we see happening Shetty got trounced. Like, he did. It wasn't he did. I mean, close. the conservatives didn't want someone who appealed to that eight percent. They wanted someone who could own Justin Trudeau. They wanted someone who could take him to task, right? And that's and, what they got. That's and what that's got. what they got. And and but what they're not getting are the voters that they need to get them over the top. Now, we saw both leaders on the road last week. Parliament was on a break. Leaders love getting out on the road. We saw quite a bit of Pierre Polyev in, in BC, where you and I are speaking from tonight. What was interesting was you're starting to see the Conservatives talking more about the opioid crisis. And when right. you look at what the top issues are for Canadians... You know, China's up there, but but unprompted, they're not really talking about it. What's at the top of that list? Cost of living. And then healthcare, and then housing affordability, and then poverty and homelessness and mental health and addiction. And it is notable that you've got the conservatives now talking about the opioid crisis. It's not just an issue, as we both know, in British Columbia, it's across the country. And I think sometimes people forget or they have this image of only marginalized people with uh, an opioid uh, addiction. 
and it's actually three quarters of them are men. Many work in trades, in construction. They're middle-aged. They're actually potential conservative voters. And again, when we look at that gender divide between men and women, these are actually the people who tend to show up for Polyev. And what I remarked on in my column was rather than actually opening up some compassion for these folks and talking about harm reduction, as well as the law enforcement aspect of it, and as well as the treatment aspect of it. His initial comments around it were, Polyev's were very much sort of in that law and order vein. He came to the downtown east side once before this trip. He referred to it as hell on earth and then drove away. And my take was, why wouldn't you actually try to start talking about some issues that will appeal to a broader base. Because once you start doing that, you talk about that potential, Ben, it would be quite unstoppable. But it seems like every time he's just on the precipice of of getting over that line and looking like a contender, he says something that people push back against. Yeah, both. I mean, right now what we have is two candidates, two, two, you know, I mean, obviously, in the next election, it's pretty. We're pretty sure that's who we're going to see. That have this incredible ability to shoot themselves in the foot, as you mentioned off the top. It raises the interesting question, though. If you're in, if you're a liberal right now and you're in caucus and you're looking at these numbers, you're thinking, if Trudeau weren't here, what would we look like? What would we be doing now? It's hard to imagine that party without him right now. But when you look at the numbers, you think Justin Trudeau is the liberals' biggest issue right now in terms of the division. You know, it has been, you're right, it's been almost eight years, but you have to wonder if they're looking at it thinking, we don't want to go to, to another election with him at the helm. We should get some caucus members on, like, could they call in? Hey, if you're yeah, a liberal call- MP, can you call in and tell us what you're thinking? But Some anonymous um, texts, maybe. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. My WhatsApps are open. Look, I think if you're in caucus, you're probably actually looking at Trudeau as as the best option to take on Pierre Polyev because he can be formidable. When he's on fire, he's on fire. While we've seen this chipping away at the liberal vote base over time, what we haven't seen is really sort of a a tipping point or a critical mass where people are just starting to slide away. When Justin Trudeau starts losing uh, women aged uh, 35 to 54, I think that is when they hit the panic button. When they start looking weak in those urban centers that are so vote rich and return so many seats to parliament, that's when they hit the panic button, but they're not there yet. So if you operate on a hypothesis that it's Justin Trudeau heading into the next election against Pierre Polyev, there's almost the David Cameron uh, shtick that Trudeau can then start offering up. I'll remind you of what that was. So around Uh, The election before Brexit, people were really ticked off at at British Prime Minister David Cameron. They were they were tired of the Tories. Uh, It wasn't looking so good. And he basically said, look, if you vote for me, I promise to go away. I won't run again. I'm out. Just one more for the Gipper. Right. And there there is possibly some framing around. Hey, let me just take you through this one. And then I promise to go away. I don't intend to be prime minister for and life. It's, and it's interesting. He had a coalition partner. I mean, he had a literal coalition partner, partner at the time that really, they really managed to crush that Social Democrat vote too, which is yes. interesting because 
The Liberals are in a similar situation with the NDP now, and it's really the NDP vote they have to worry about the most. If them someone coming up on their left flank, I don't know where the Liberal Party's left flank is anymore, but they'd be able to. That's who they have to worry about. Well, I think they've in those basically major eaten. They, they, there yeah. is, there is. I mean, they've eaten the, the NDP's lunch. Jagmeet Singh, in terms of leader approval. People like him. He's personable. They feel like he connects with them. It does not translate into votes. Jagmeet Singh, in some ways, is the new Elizabeth May. Right. First in our hearts, but not there on the ballot. <laughs> Shachi Kroll, as always, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I know that oftentimes, if you're sitting here listening to me chat, we are kind of hanging out in some way, aren't we? I mean, this is not probably structured. Maybe you just leave, you turn on the radio and you go do something else at the same time, or you're reading the paper, reading a book, cozy it up. Who knows? But we're just hanging out. Sort of unstructured, right? Kind of? Well, there is this theory out there, and that this was exacerbated by all that happened at the height of the pandemic. But that we don't hang out like we used to, that we've kind of lost touch with the art of just hanging out. Mainly, technology has done it. We're tied to our phones. We're tied to our laptops, our iPads, our desks, whatever it may be. But that we're, and that because of it, we schedule everything. So we're either, you know, and I'm, I'm a terrible culprit of this, but, you know, scrolling through social media while you're sitting there, like nothing has that same unstructured, just wasting time together feel that it used to. Um, and perhaps that's not a good thing. I mean, the way that my next guest describes hanging out is the unstructured or lightly structured time spent in the company of friends, strangers, or acquaintances. Unstructured or lightly structured time. This isn't you have 15 minutes to catch up on your day. This isn't a 10-minute Zoom call with someone you love. This is unstructured time where you basically just sit around and hang out. And we used to do a lot of it. And every once in a while, you'll be in cultures where they do it really well. I remember spending time in Newfoundland. I have family in Newfoundland. They really know how to hang out. Ireland, unsurprisingly, a place where people really know how to hang out. Just relax and hang out. Chat, tell some stories. You know, occasionally there's some, you know, there's drinking involved or tea. There's always a lot of tea involved. Um, but normally it's just hanging out. Like there's nowhere to be. There's nowhere to go. You haven't come from anything. You're not in a rush. You're not plugged into your phone. You're not talking to somebody else. You're not texting someone else while talking. You're just enjoying intimacy, connection, and peace with other people. So what has happened to it? Here's a great example of hanging out from the show where that's all they really did on Friends, right? Was hang out at Central Perk. They're just hanging out, doing not much, when Ross starts humming the theme to The Odd Couple. There you go. That's what happens when you just hang out. Little things like that. Humming the theme to the odd couple uh, and having everyone else join in with you. Well, 
My next guest has written an entire book about this uh, called Hanging Out, The Radical Power of Killing Time. Sheila Liming is an associate professor of writing at Champlain College in Burlington, Vermont. And again, the book, Hanging Out, The Radical Power of Killing Time. Sheila, thank you. Thank you, Ben. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for killing some time with us. That's always appreciated. <laughs> Happy to. <laughs> Just by by your definition, what is hanging out? Because I know a lot of people sort of, sort of think of it differently, right? Yeah. Um, in the book, I, I start with a kind of working definition of hanging out, which I call daring to do not much and daring to do it in the company of other people. The quality that I'm really focusing on in the book is that social dynamic. Spending time that is either unstructured or lightly structured in the company of other people. And that can be family, friends, strangers, coworkers, etc. Just hanging out. I mean, I've always had, I was in I was in France this time last year, and I remember walking past and seeing, you know, a, a gaggle of older folks, not just men, but older folks hanging around playing bull or, you know, France's version of bocce and thinking, wow, what a great, I mean, they're just hanging out. They're just hanging out. Doesn't that look like fun? One thing that I like to think about a lot living here in pretty snowy Vermont is like, what does that look like when we're forced to do it indoors? It's sometimes, you know, something that happens sort of naturally out of doors, but it's difficult sometimes to think about how you do it inside indoor space. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, what happened to it? I mean, the idea that uh, the radical power of killing time is important suggests that in some way we've lost touch with that. What happened to it? Yeah, and that's that's what I'm trying to explore in the book is both how we've lost touch with it and how that might have occurred. And there's a couple of angles or approaches that I try to develop um, in relation to that question. One, of course, has to do with time, attenuation of time, and also like the hyper-scheduled nature of the modern world where it feels like, you know, now we have these digital cam uh, calendars that make sure that we're like slotted into individual tasks at almost every single moment of our day. And I don't know about you, Ben, but like for me, I almost have to schedule time where I will just put on my calendar that like I'm busy even when I know I'm not. Um, so part of it is certainly time. Um, I also talk a lot about the shrinking of public space, of shared right. space, um, because that's important too. If you're going to hang out, you have to have like sort of neutral grounds in which to hang out. And that's something that seems to be more difficult to come by these days. Yeah, it is. And, and one of the things that struck me about just, you know, reading reading about your work was was the importance of it. I mean, it, it does bring us something. We like hanging out, but we're, we exist in this era now where hanging out starts to feel like a bit of a waste of time in this this whole in this world where you kind of, you know, the perfect one's perfect self is always is always there. You should be reading something or, you know, or, or trying to figure out how to how to do something better instead of just hanging out, which feels like it can be a bit of a time waster. Right. That's the problem. Exactly. And I think psychologically, we kind of have to work through that view that when you're hanging out, you're not doing anything, that you're not producing or you're not making money or you're not making yourself smarter or something like that. And um, the argument that I try to advance in the book is that actually we are making things um, when we're hanging out in each other's company and killing time. And the things that we're making are our relationships to each other and also like the sort of bedrock of our democratic society, too, um, in those relationships. Acknowledging each other, in other words. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. What was the epiphany for you here? I, I was reading it. You, you did when this book came out, you did an interview with the New York Times. They talked a bit about uh, about a friend of yours being on a reality show where you had to pretend to be friends. And it sort of encapsulated what you thought might be the problem with, you know, performative hanging out. Yeah, that's actually the first chapter that I wrote when I was thinking about this book it was the chapter that I call Hanging On on Television. I write about my relationship with um, a friend of mine. In the process of our being friends, uh, she sort of turned into this reality television star. And myself and other friends in our sort of friend network, we all became 
like characters on the this show extras, of hers. Right. Yeah, exactly. And it was strange because we were playing ourselves, right? If, if we're inhabiting the roles that we already played in real life. But as the um, reality show sort of became more popular over the years, I also realized that like my friendship with her was sort of withering and, and drying up even as I was still being compelled to sort of play at the work of being her friend on TV. So that was kind of the seed of my thinking of this book. I started to think about um, reality television as a first kind of place where we see people hanging out. And I also think that that's a big draw of why we like reality TV, or at least why many of us are drawn to it. It's like eavesdropping on somebody else's social life. And that feeling of getting to hang out with these people or watch them hang out, you know, fills the void a little bit sometimes. That's that's kind of a sad statement. <laughs> I mean, you're absolutely <laughs> right. You're absolutely right that we eavesdrop on other people's sort of mundane lives to replace what we don't do enough of ourselves, right? Well, it is sad, or I would say melancholy in some ways, but I also see it as, you know, a coping mechanism. And one of the things that I try to track in the book is like various forms of coping mechanisms. What we do to try to make hanging out happen in a world where hanging out has become more difficult, whether that's hanging out on the internet and maintaining relationships with people via, you know, text message and email and social media apps and things like that, um, or whether it's engaging in reality television. Yeah. I, and, and from there, I guess, I guess that there, from there, because I can't imagine what it's, it, I mean, I, you know, I worked in TV as a reporter, so I, I know how much, even in what is the most reality of reality television news, how much of it is sort of not exactly as it appears. It must yeah. have been a very strange experience to be someone's friend on TV. It was. And one of the strangest parts about it was how I felt like my life suddenly started to happen twice. Um, we would do all these events, you know, we'd celebrate a holiday or we'd celebrate somebody's birthday or a baby being born. And then we would do it all over again for the sake of the show. And after a while, it started to feel like, which one of these is the real one? You know, when are, when are we actually celebrating the baby being born versus when am I doing something else for the sake of, I don't know, showing other people that I'm excited about this event. So the confusion that came from that was was part of what I was interested in exploring in the book. And, and what have you found? I mean, we'll talk a bit about how to get it back, because I think that's probably one of the, the most important parts of the book is, is this idea that we need to somehow recover this, this idea of hanging out. I mean, you, you point to the, to children, right? And we often do mm-hmm. about their ability to hang out as being something. It never feels like you're wasting time when you're doing nothing when you're young. Yeah. And in the book, I draw the analogy that, you know, play is to children as hanging out is to adulthood. It's the sort of play that we engage with. We never begrudge children their play. We, we think of it as a time when they are learning, when they're developing their social skills, when they're you know figuring out the world and their role in it, when they're like learning how to do things like share and navigate all those you know sticky situations, conflicts, et cetera. And those things don't necessarily go away when we become adults, those challenges don't go away. But I, I see hanging out as a similar kind of like venue in which we try to explore those skills and those social practices. Um, and without hanging out that, you know, it makes all those things harder. Sheila Liming is an associate professor of writing at Champlain College in Burlington, Vermont. Her book is called Hanging Out, The Radical Power of Killing Time, an ode to killing time and hanging out. I mean, we've all done it. We we can all think of of how we lionize. I mean, I, I find often, Sheila, I see other people hanging out. I was mentioning it earlier in Paris, you know, the whole, the typical New York stoop where people are just hanging out. And you always kind of envy it when you see it. You know, think, wow, that looks like fun. Just hanging out with people you like. I mean, you don't know the reality of it, but maybe they're all bored or all wishing they were somewhere else. But at the same time, you look at it and think, wow, that's that looks like a lot of fun. And they're not doing anything. 
Agreed. Yeah. And I, I think the French are, are kind of seen as a culture that really gets hanging out where it like comes to them very effortlessly. I think that um, many of us in the United States and in North America, we sort of romanticize European cultures for their ability to do this. Even though, of course, what we're talking about are very, very simple things. Hanging out on a stoop or a park bench or in a public place where you can kind of just talk to people casually. But one thing I think is interesting is the sort of growing social stigma around starting conversations with strangers. And this is something that I think comes easier to certain societies than it does maybe to, you know, the society that I live in here in the United States, where increasingly I think if you try to start a conversation with a stranger, people look at you like you're psycho, right? <laughs> yeah, sometimes, sometimes. It's amazing how well people respond if you do do it in a friendly way. But yeah, people people do look at you a bit, a bit askew at times <laughs> with this. So how do you get it back? You've talked about trying to not put to, I mean, the worst mistake we could make is to say, well, you know, my resolution this year is I'm going to hang out more and here's the times I'm going to do it. And here's how I'm going to do it. And I'm going to take pictures of it. I'm going to post it on Facebook. I can tell everyone <laughs> that I'm now devoted to hanging out. I mean, that therein would be, that sort of defeats the whole purpose, doesn't it? Certainly. Yeah. I style the conclusion of the book as a kind of like how to, not trying to get too self-healthy, but thinking about like, what are the steps that we can take to increase our own aptitude for hanging out and maybe to bear some of the discomfort that occasionally comes with it a little bit too. So I talk about the first step being taking time. And that actually just means setting aside time, not necessarily like a scheduled block of time in your calendar, but something a little bit more open-ended than that. Because I think we all know that feeling when we're hanging out with someone who in 15 minutes from now has to be somewhere else. And they yeah. keep like looking at their watch, right? Or looking at their phone and be like, well, I got to get out. Nobody likes that feeling. So no. it's more about creating pockets of unstructured time so you can actually sort of just relax and luxuriate in that moment that you have with somebody else rather than thinking about, you know, checking off the next box that comes on your list that day. I guess you have to adapt to other people as well because you have to accept that some of the people you know aren't comfortable with that. They want things mm -hmm. scheduled, right? So you kind of have to work around that. But uh, even just spending some time together where you don't have anything planned afterwards would work. Yeah, I think developing a mild appetite for social discomfort. In the book, you know, I, I start off in the first chapter talking about parties, and I talk about parties as a kind of fraught concept because while many people love parties and they look forward to them and they love to throw them, there's equally um, as many people who hate them, who fear them, oh. who dread parties and think of them as like, you know, basically social requirements that they would rather not do. Or what if no one shows up? You know, yeah, that it's all there's a lot of pressure there. <laughs> yeah. And that totally happened to me once. I once planned a party. This was years ago when I was in my 20s and absolutely nobody came. <laughs> yeah, we've all been there. We've all been there, right? And, it, you know, it actually was fine. It was like a bad night for me to plan the party. And, like, you know, I ended up going somewhere else and, like, joining up with another party. It was fine. But, but more just kind of thinking about, like, what are we afraid of in those moments when we're, like, trying to plan something and we're afraid that nobody's going to show up or it's not going to be acceptable to people. Yeah. So try and put those fears aside as well. When you look at, at where you would like to see hanging out go, I mean, I think, you know, it's it's quite possible that the uh, that the uh, the horse has already left the barn when it comes to our sort of obsession with scheduling and and all that. But we should be able to slow down a little bit and at least appreciate, at least recognize the importance of just chilling. I mean, chilling is the word we use back. <laughs> that, that dates me. Um, but, you know, they're just hanging out, hanging out. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine with chilling. <laughs> That's fine with me. But also, I think, you know, recognizing that that behavior, which is so often seen as sort of like wasteful or nonproductive, that it is important and it is productive. And, you know, part of what we get in those moments when we're not necessarily 
earning money or contributing to society in the more productive ways is we get this intimacy um, that comes from being together and sort of improvising in the moment. Yeah, and, and sort of reconnecting with some of what's been lost over the past while uh, when it comes, because what was interesting about social media and so on is your ability to reconnect with so many people. Yes. And yet and yet seeing them in person is infinitely more fun than following them on Facebook or chatting to them on online. It just is. It is, right? I mean, you get so much more of an intimate connection out of seeing somebody in person, seeing their facial expressions, reading their body language, everything like that, um, than you do over the internet. But there's also risk involved, too. And I think that's sometimes what freaks us out about that, too. So uh, what has been the reaction to, to all of this? Because you kind of put yourself out there as as someone who's, um, you know, cares about this stuff. I would suspect you've gotten a lot of feedback. I have, yeah. Um, and it's been sort of interesting to view the terrain of the feedback some of the feedback, I think, has been fascinating to me because it's sort of been like, well, I don't understand what the problem is. I have no problem hanging out. And I'm like, well, great. I'm so happy for you. <laughs> However, <laughs> there are many of us, you know, who coming out of two and a half, three years of the pandemic are actually really struggling to think about like the social musculature that is required for doing these things. And maybe even viewing them now with a little bit of like dread and anxiety too, going into it. So I was partially writing the book for those folks too. You know, those people who might have fears like that they forgot how to hang out over the past several years. Yeah, it took it took some time to learn how to hang out again because for a while there we we avoided it. And 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 a lot of people who don't like hanging out, I, I'm not, and I don't want, this is, this is just a personal thing. A lot of people who don't like hanging out took full advantage of that time to stop hanging out. That was the, uh, <laughs> that was what I found. But anyway, that's uh, neither here nor there. Uh, Sheila Liming, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ben. This was fun. Let's talk a bit of hockey tonight. Well, not, it's not really about what happened on the ice. It's about what didn't happen on the ice on Saturday night in San Jose. The Sharks had spent quite a bit of time, I understand, arranging for a pride night that night. Part of that pride night was the players during warm-up were going to wear pride-themed jerseys. Well, one of their players, goalie James Reimer, uh, who used to be with the Toronto Maple Leafs, you may notice that, may recognize that name, uh, did not take part. He sat out. Uh, he was benched for the game. He's playing tonight, actually. Uh, the Sharks are playing the Oilers. He is playing tonight. Uh, but he said he had made that decision based on his Christian beliefs. He later went on to say that he wouldn't, uh, that his old teammate Nazem Kadri, who was the first Muslim player to win a Stanley Cup, wouldn't expect him to have worn a Muslim jersey. So where he was going with his, with his reasoning on this, who knows? But what it really, ha what re what it really broke it down to is that he would not take part in this pride night that the Sharks had set up for the team. Everyone else did. Of course, part of the issue was all the focus was on the one who did not hear his Reimer explaining his decision. For all 13 years of my NHL career, um, I've been a Christian, not just in title, but in, in how I choose to live my life daily. Um, I have a personal faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for my sins and in response asked me to love everyone and, uh, and follow him. Um, I have no hate in my heart for, for anyone. Uh, I've always strived to treat everyone with uh, respect and, and, and kindness. Um, in this specific instance, I'm personally choosing not to endorse something, um, you know, a sexual identity or orientation that is counter to my convictions, which are based in the Bible. Yeah, okay. 
Um, that's his reasoning for it. He's not the first, of course. Uh, you may remember not too long ago, Philadelphia Flyers defenseman Ivan Provorov did the same, citing his Russian Orthodox faith. A couple of weeks later, the New York Rangers decided not to wear the planned Pride-themed jerseys for their night. The Islanders did the same um, for their night because the franchise only mandates pregame jerseys for cancer, the military, and the Irish. That's the New York Islanders. The Minnesota Wild followed the Rangers and abandoned their jersey on March 8th, setting concern for their Russian star, Kirill Kaprizov. Now, again, the Sharks did talk with Reimer. They agreed, Reimer rather, they agreed to disagree. And as I mentioned, 19 of the 20 players went out on the ice with their rainbow-themed shark jerseys for the occasion. Now, in response to Reimer's decision, Penguins president Brian Burke, who had the goalie on his team when he had the same role with the Leafs, released this statement. I repeat that I'm extremely disappointed. I wish players would understand that the pride sweaters are about inclusion and welcoming everybody. A player wearing pride colors or tape isn't endorsing a set of values or enlisting in a cause. He is saying, you are welcome here and you are in every single NHL building. Burke, of course, is a founding member of You Can Play, the You Can Play Project, an organization founded back in 2011 following the passing of his late son, Brendan, with the stated mission of ensuring the safety and inclusion of all LGBTQ people in sports, including athletes, coaches, staffs, staff, and their fans. Well, joining me now with more on this is Taylor McKee. He's an assistant professor uh, in sports management at Brock University. Taylor, thanks for staying up late. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. So, I mean, you, I read something that you wrote um, when the Provorov incident happened. Tell me a bit about your reaction to what happened on Saturday night, because it felt very similar. Certainly looking back now at, uh, at, at, at when we saw the thing go down in Philadelphia, this was a, a sadly predictable act. Um, this was, again, a situation that I, I do believe could have been completely avoided and was certainly an avoidable situation back to when it happened in Philadelphia, not even in the, in the avoidance of wearing the Jersey, but in the way the situation was dealt with and the ways in which the microphones were positioned and the ways in which people were platformed in certain ways, because essentially what that moment in Philadelphia did was said, okay, now this is a referendum for each and every NHL player is now free to sort of elect to choose or not choose to wear warm-up jerseys of any of their choosing for the rest of the season. And that's just not how this is meant to be designed. This is not how these initiatives are meant to be uh, be understood or interpreted. And again, I trace it back to, to Provorov and, and also John Tortorella's comments immediately after. And it, this is likely not over. Um, this is probably going to continue as long as these private initiatives are, are a part of the NHL calendar, which it looks like they will be moving forward. Yeah, one of the things that's, that's interesting, I mean, the reaction from the Sharks was, I, I gather, somewhat different. I, you know, I followed a bit of the Philadelphia one back when uh, it looked like the reaction from the Sharks w- was a bit different. That being said, the outcome was the same. Here we are talking about James Reimer and Ivan Provorov, not about Pride Night in San Jose. Absolutely. And and you can imagine what this is like. And I have the fortunate ability to speak to some people that, are, that work for NHL teams on the sort of side of promotions and marketing. And you, know, you you can imagine the nervousness that accompanies these Pride Nights now because an enormous amount of work goes into and not just ensuring that players are wearing a specific jersey. I think that it's incredibly myopic of us to imagine that that is all that these nights entail. It involves bringing specific groups to the arena, arranging special ceremonies beforehand, and making sure that there are, well, these nights done well, making sure that there are authentic connections to the LGBTQ community in the cities that these events are taking place in in order to make these nights more than just wearing a jersey. So now you're looking at what is 
months and months and months of preparation for each of these nights. And now PR officials, marketing staff are worried. What is my coach going to say? What are my players going to say? I mean, frankly, they are within their rights to refuse to wear those jerseys. They're also within their rights to be benched and they're within their rights to be suspended. And if they were to refuse other parts of team policy, they would be treated in that exact same fashion. And if they didn't wear a shirt and tie to the game and that was team policy, they'd be benched. And if they were late for the team bus, they'd be benched. And there are lots of aspects of team policy that are enforced at the team level that I think were, were missed in that very first incident. And this could have been dealt with in a quiet fashion. If Ivan Provorov believed this was a part of his religious conviction to not wear the jersey, he's free not to play in that game. And you see the, the precedent that it set early on. So certainly the Sharks' reaction, I think, is emblematic of, of other teams in the league saying to themselves, oh, goodness, this is not something we want to be associated with. But that being said, in failing to address this properly by one team, you, you set a standard for the rest of the league itself. Where do you think the problem lies here? Because when you look at it, there's so many ways of looking at where the problem came from, right? Part of it is the league. sort of. Part of it is teams doing this for reasons. I mean, outreach is great, but you know they're doing this for other reasons other than outreach. There's money involved. There's trying to grow their fan base. Like, there's lots of different stuff going on here. Um, but where do you think it's – where do you – where do you think it's gone wrong or how do you think you can make it better, I guess, is the better question. I think probably a, a lack of genuine connection to the, what these events are supposed to mean. There are now several dozens of, fa- of uh, specialized jerseys that take place uh, before the game. And I think we've kind of forgotten that this was a, a real act of defiance, a real act of genuine empathy when they first were introduced in professional sports, be that soccer, football, you name it. This was a, a very sort of countercultural to, to the sport mainstream move when they were first introduced. And there's so many of them now that I do wonder if there's a complete disconnection from the power that these statements used to hold. So the players see them now as just sort of one of a number of special jerseys that they're asked to wear. And they say to themselves, well, you know, uh, and this again, not to just (laughs) recapitulate the same uh, line of argument about the Philadelphia Flyers, but when John Tortorella said, the thing I like about uh, Ivan Provorov is that he's true to his religion. I mean, that is a loud statement that says, the thing I like about this person is that they're not afraid to stand up for what they believe in. Now, that, that's an unbelievably logically valid, uh, farcical argument to make about the way that this is, sort of thing works. But you can see the sort of problem that was presented there. So these players now thinking about these incidents for the first time or these, these jerseys for the first time are presented with this sort of issue. Well, am I supposed to appear as though I am compromising my personal beliefs? Not recognizing what the fact that these, these jerseys are just one small piece of what should be a larger effort to incorporate people that aren't traditionally allowed in hockey spaces. And you see this sort of disconnect that can form for players. Yeah, because from just from an outreach point of view, what you wind up with is you wind up with Ivan Provorov and John Tortorella and James Reimer essentially being the headline here that the message isn't you're welcome or, you know, we include you. The message is, yeah, almost all of us include you. But, uh, you know, a few of us who we're going to give a lot of attention to don't. And I guess part of the problem here, too, is just that whole intersection between politics and sport and all the things that happen that it just feels like, I mean, there was an interesting op-ed in the, in the Globe and Mail today talking about how it looks like the NHL likes to have this always, right? Do these nights, let the players object, and then the player becomes the bad person, right? Which is, which is in this debate, which again, it's, it just feels like something's wrong here. And it's hard to figure out exactly how you fix it or what exactly is the problem. Then you're absolutely right. I think that the, the op-ed that you're referring to does articulate that exact sort of point that, look, if you're the NHL, you either mandate these events and take the choice out of the hands of the players, or 
if they choose to abstain, that it comes with mandated punishments, which I do believe is the best way to do this. You know, allow them to abstain if they choose, but don't allow them to play in the game as well. That's the part that doesn't make it uh, that make any sense for me. Provov is free to object. He's not free from the consequences of those objections. And I think anyone, who, if they believe that these are actually part of their religious beliefs, would be fine with paying whatever penalty came with it. So one of the issues is, you're right, these teams, the league itself should say, these are mandated. And the New York Islanders inadvertently sort of revealed the fact that there are mandated special jerseys that have to be worn, and Pride Nights are not among them. So you're right, the NHL sort of wants to, uh, to project its sort of uh, progressive image, and they also want to have all of us get to know our stars and get to know what they're all about and get to know what they think about things. Well, maybe that's not such a wise idea in all senses. And this is another example of where, you know, if we have greater access to the unfiltered thoughts of a lot of our players, I think a lot of uh, fans might be disappointed with what they hear. As you look at this, uh, Taylor, I'm trying to figure out how do you go about if the league and the teams aren't going to commit to making this obligatory um, and the players are going to opt out of it. It sort of feels like it defeats the entire purpose. At the same time, you can't not recognize the fact that 19 of the 20 Sharks the other night put on the jerseys and went out and tried to make this night a success. Certainly. And if you think back to the, the incident in Philadelphia as well, I mean, you had Scott Lawton and I believe James Van Rienstijk at that time um, putting up very thoughtful quotes that said, you know, it's a shame this had to happen this way. We got to meet with uh, those members of the LGBT community previous to this, and it was a great time, and we really had a, a really awesome experience with them. And, and really, that is what these nights are supposed to be. And it, it's, it's just unfortunate, again, and, and you, you mentioned if the leagues and the teams aren't going to make this obligatory. And I think that that's likely where this is headed is sort of a, a bit of an ugly struggle here between um, those that would like these things to become obligatory the way that as the Islanders revealed some nights are uh, completely obligatory and again to stop this from becoming a situation in which players are forced to present themselves as a, uh, essentially within their own uh, decision making about whether or not they're going to wear each individual jersey uh, moving forward right just you look at what's happening in the U.S. right now and just how – and you, it feels like the kind of issue that some a league like the NHL does not want to get involved with because, it, you know, there's been a lot of problems, a lot of issues these days surrounding the demonization of the LGBTQ community in the U.S. We've seen it with different politicians, uh, the Ron DeSantis's of the world, and it just feels like the NHL are not the kind of league to step into that, into that minefield, even though perhaps now is the time, but – you know, politics and sports can be, we saw what happened with Colin Kaepernick. Leagues get very nervous about these things because it's all about their bottom line to some extent. Certainly. And, and, and again, this has been an, essentially a settled issue in not just the NHL, but in professional sports now for, for close to a decade. This is not right. an issue. This is not a, a battleground issue. This is not an, an identity issue for this is, again, this is what I was referring to earlier, that it, it is a shame that the initial power what these symbols used to mean, whether it was, you know, wearing pink for breast cancer or any of these sorts of countercultural movements that were designed to disrupt your normal viewing experience when you watch sports, they used to carry a lot of power. Now, we've really disassociated ourselves from what those those symbols mean. And for for that reason, I think that, again, we've kind of forgot what they're supposed to, to represent it at all. So certainly there is an attempt to to monetize this sort of effort. And again, when you mentioned that the NHL doesn't want to, to, to walk into this minefield, I mean, Certainly not. And the NHL doubly needs to be concerned about not just the, the people that it upsets, but the people that are drawn closer to the league through these kinds of incidents. And that's, and again, a really, really, really worrisome thing for the NHL overall. For instance, in the aftermath of the Provorov incident, his jersey sells out uh, on the Fanatics website. 
Now, this is a problem. It's not just about, you know, trying to turn people away. It's who you're welcoming in when these things happen. These are not people who necessarily are have, have the best interests of the National Hockey League at heart, who are genuinely interested in, in Ivan Provorov's career and his, his time in the Brandon Wheat Kings and his first-round draft pick. No, he, they're interested in what they symbolize. And we should be cognizant, again, of what when players choose to, to not wear these jerseys or, or make these kinds of, frankly, unbelievably confusing statements like the one he made yesterday in reference to Nazem Kadri, this would be James yeah. Reimer. Um, I mean, the, the reception that they receive from other corners of the Internet and abroad, I mean, this is something that the NHL should be extremely concerned about. Taylor, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your insight on this. Much appreciated. Thanks so much for having me. This last half hour, this is a bit of an interesting one. This is about backyard chickens, but not just any backyard chickens, because the gentleman who owns these backyard chickens happens to have spent his entire career studying the spread of uh, zoonotic diseases like avian flu, right? So he has these backyard chickens, and he just wrote this really interesting opinion piece for the Globe and Mail, which was about our concerns about avian flu, how it spreads, where it spreads. And is there any contradiction being someone who knows the subject so well, having spoken to small-scale farmers across Southeast Asia about the need to watch out for avian flu and how you protect um, birds in these ecosystems and so forth, how you protect against the spread of it? Is there any contradiction to having these backyard chickens? So we thought we'd call him up and talk about it. Uh, Dave Waltner-Taves is a veterinary epidemiologist. He's a professor emeritus at the University of Guelph, and he's author of A Conspiracy of Chickens, a memoir. David, thank you. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Good to talk about it. Yeah, not a conspiracy about chickens, but of chickens. An interesting interesting turn. Why is that? Well, it's partly because, you know, there's a murder of crows and all. I know it's a, a flock of chickens didn't quite sound right. So I right. figured a conspiracy and they're smarter than we think they are. They're carrying their own microbiome with them. And so they're transmitting whatever they're carrying with them. See? Yeah. We, we give them a bit of a, we, we give them short shrift, don't we? Yeah. And I've worked with uh, commercial farmers and when you're working with large chicken barns, you know, there's even a hundred to 500 to thousands you tend not to differentiate them. And so when, when, when I retired and my wife gave me seven chickens for my 70th birthday, well, you know, I, I, I know what <laughs> I knew what to do in terms of diagnosing in a large flock. And I knew about sort of populations as an epidemiologist, but suddenly they're in my backyard and it's not just a matter of making a diagnosis. They all have individual personalities and it gets a lot more complicated. I had friends who said, You've worked for 20, 30 years on avian influenza and you've got backyard chickens like this is crazy. Yeah, <laughs> your wife, your wife clearly wanted to keep you busy. Yes, she did. And she it's, did. it's worked, you know, keeps my heart going and my brain going. And uh, I figured out how, I knew how to give farmers advice on how to raise chickens, because that's what veterinarians do. Right. You give them advice and then you walk away. But if it's in your backyard, you can't exactly do that. What's it been like? Uh, you know, I've heard varying uh, varying experiences with having backyard chickens. It's, it, it's a lot of work, right? It's a lot of work. And one of the first things I discovered was that they put out a whole lot more excrement than they do eggs. Right. So <laughs> I have to figure out, what am I going to do with this stuff? Well, fortunately, I've got a good garden. I've got friends who've got gardens and you compost it. And if you use it straight, it's got really high nitrogen. You end up burning the soil. But if you mix it with the bedding and the straw and so on, it composts really well. So that's good. And uh, you learn about 
chicken dynamics, picking picking order, I used to think was a sort of theoretical thing, you know, like you have yeah. a picking order in an office. Well, they get pretty vicious. So you learn something about who's on top, who's in the bottom, and they, you know, they can try to almost kill each other. Really? <laughs> so, it, uh, you know, it can be pretty brutal. You learn to pay attention. And, and urban ecology, I mean, I sort of paid attention to my backyard, but then I proofed the coop and the run against foxes and rats and raccoons and all of those kind of things. And then realized that, in fact, uh, a lot of the predators in in my part of the world are airborne. Right. So I lost one to a a hawk coming down, picked it off and scared a few of the other chickens under the bushes when these hawks came over and sat in the trees and just watched and waited till the chickens would come out. Yeah, I think I remember that from Looney Tunes. Yeah. (laughs) From Bugs Bunny. There is Um, actually no such thing as a chicken hawk, but I learned a little bit about goshawks and red tails and things like that. So, I, I mean, it's been an education for me in terms of urban ecology and the other thing that they did was uh, a lot of the organic waste. You know, you don't eat everything or you have peelings and things mm-hmm. like that. I just fed it to the chickens. Yeah, they'll so eat I it. diverted a whole lot of stuff from the, from the city into, into chickens, which is great. Now, given your extensive background, having sort mm-hmm. of looked at animal zoonosis, animal, you know, the transference mm-hmm. of, of disease between animals and humans. I mean, we do. T- there's been a big avian flu, another surge of avian flu concern right. again. Yeah. Uh, how does that all wrap into having these backyard chickens? So you essentially have these this species right in your right in your midst. I mean, it's a serious disease, and this wave, you know, come across the North America. And when I looked at the maps as it was unfolding, it looked like it came up through the flyways because of the the natural reservoir for all influenza viruses is is water birds so ducks and geese and swans and all that you you can catch them and swab them and just about all of them are carrying some form of avian influenza and traditionally it doesn't kill the 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 wild birds there have been a few mutations and so this most recent uh wave uh, started killing birds uh there have only been since 2003 i think there have been about fewer than 900 cases in people, but about half of those have died. So there's there aren't very many cases, but if you get it, it's really serious. So that's, that's you know, something to pay attention to. The difference is that for something like uh, traditional flu or even coronavirus, they tend to, they go to the lower respiratory tract, right. so you, get, you can get pneumonia and so on. This avian flu tends to attach in your upper respiratory tract, so you get you know, your body gets rid of it fairly quickly. You can you can have an influenza-like disease, and then you get rid of it. The fear is that it would mutate, and then it would get deeper into your lungs, and then you get the you know the fifty percent mortality. The people that have had it are people that work really closely with chickens, like butchering them, like preparing them. There was one case in the U.S., not a fatal case in Colorado last year. Uh, a person who was cleaning out chicken barns where they had suspected avian influenza. And so they were culling the birds. They tend to kill all the birds in the barn. And that person got sick, but they didn't They didn't die. I mean, they had this sort of a serious uh, respiratory disease, and then they got better. So it's really working closely with them. There's two things. One is you don't want your chickens to get it. So when it's during migrating season for the, for the water birds going north or coming back south in the fall, um, I keep the birds under a roof and, and fence stand. I'm not near any waterways, so that that's a concern. I mean, I've seen in Southeast Asia where they've got ducks along the Mekong River near the uh, Vietnamese border, and they're all over the place. And then right. their chickens, you've got the back and forth interaction, which is one of the reasons you have it emerging there. 
you know, it's not a source of panic. You just sort of pay attention. It's like you pay attention to having dogs not pooping everywhere and those kinds of things. Right. The same thing with backyard chickens. You pay attention. You're careful. You know how the disease might be spread, so you try to minimize those kinds of things. They talk about tens of millions of cases, but what that is is that if there are some cases in a big chicken barn, they tend to kill all the birds in the barn because they don't want it to spread to other barns. So when you see tens of millions of cases, it's not that that many birds got sick. It's that they cleaned out that many birds yeah, from they, barns, they, and it tends to be a bigger uh, farm, bigger flocks yeah. where that happens. They try to ring fence it, right? That's the uh, that's, yeah, that's, that's basically that's what they the do. that's the idea, although it probably doesn't, you know, they draw circles around it, but that's probably not how it spreads. It's probably, you know, feed trucks, uh, people going from barn to barn. So the more important thing from my point of view is looking at who's coming and going on these big farms rather than simply drawing a circle around it. What's been, I mean, you talked a bit about what, what's happened with this spread. Uh, clearly, it's a concern, right? We're seeing, especially in yep. the U.S., it's been a big yep. concern. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, we saw the H5N1 whole, we talked about this a bit earlier. When I was in Asia, you were in Asia back in sort of the late noughts. There was a yep. huge concern over H5N1. Mm -hmm. Where do you see this one going, or, or, or do we know yet? We don't know yet. It's important to pay attention. I think we're all a little bit on edge because of the pandemic we've been going through over the last few years. And that's okay to be a bit on age and pay attention to what we're doing. Uh, I don't think the right response is a panic where you kind of shut everything down. That's not going to be very helpful. I mean, as a vet, you know, if I walk on a farm and, and I see a sick animal, I'm not going to just panic. That doesn't help anybody. You look at what the situation is and you make some reasonable decisions and you try to minimize spread. Could there be a, a human pandemic? It's possible, but I'd say the probability is really low. The concern now is that there have been spread to a non like non water birds and to mammals. Right. It looks like most of that spread has been because those animals are scavenging on already dead water birds. So you've got a hawk that gets it because they they hate a, a slow duck, you know, a duck that was already sick. Uh, there have been foxes that have gotten it, and that's because they they scavenge on those things. So it's a matter of paying attention to those things. If there are outbreaks, to control them, uh, not have chickens near waterways. If people have backyard chickens like I do and people in our neighborhood, then you keep them away from waterways. And if there are migrating birds going through you, you uh, keep your birds in for that period of time. And I think you take reasonable precautions and yeah, something could happen. But if you live your whole life saying, you know, the sky is falling, then you yeah, know, that's, a, that's a problem. You another say, well, the sky could fall. Another famous chicken. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Chicken little. Uh, yeah. I was one of the things you brought up that I found really astounding, and I think we know this, and we're seeing the impact of this avian flu outbreak on it because the consumption and production of chicken has simply gone through the roof over the last uh, few decades. I mean, we, we were pointing out that it was 9 million tons of poultry meat production to 133 million tons. Yeah, I mean, it was just, if I look at the graphs, it's just huge, just a, a dramatic. And that major boost was in the 90s. I mean, I, I remember in the 90s, one business expanded really fast. In Canada, we had troops of people going to China. We got a trade with China, our prime minister and a whole trade delegations. And there was a lot of back and forth. You know, globalization, massive trade, including trade in different kinds of, of animals. And so we it was globalization, but it, which I'm not against, but it was kind of sloppy globalization. Yeah, it was Nobody done fast. Was really paying. It was done fast. 
you do something fast without paying attention, without knowing what kind of birds you're dealing with. These are monocultures. These are birds that there was a recent paper that said, if you look at the chickens we've got now and compare them with the chickens that were 20 years ago, these are essentially genetically modified such that if you came along in a thousand years, you could tell our period of time by looking at the chicken bones because they're so different than the chickens that came before. There's a kind of a wow. break in terms of what these chickens yeah. are. And that's because it expanded so fast. And, and how does and how does avian flu play into that? Because I, I think we've noticed the impact on the industry and because the industry right. is so concentrated and these factories are so big uh, that it does have an outsized impact on it when these well, things break. Yeah. And there, I mean, there are two parts. One is that any group of animals, you put a lot of animals together. If you've got a few of them that are sick, they spread it through the whole population, especially if they're crowded. It happens with people. It happens with cows. It happens with chickens. So we got bigger and bigger chicken barns. So we said economies of scale, a little bit bigger is better. And so really big is better than anything. So And then combine that with international trade. And suddenly we have stuff going all over the world. So you have an outbreak one place and, and it spreads all over the world. And so we've got individual farms where the animals are crowded. It's spread within those farms. And then we've got trade. I mean, that's when the H1N1, which was this other virus in, the, in 2009, they called it swine virus, but it was actually a combination of human and swine and bird. Those were animals raised in Mexico with an American company that was trying to use labor where they didn't need health regulations, those kind of things. And they were shipping stuff to China. Well, that's asking for trouble. As an epidemiologist, I'm looking at this and I don't think this is a good idea. Yeah. It might be financially a good idea, but in terms of disease spread, it's a really bad idea. Yeah. And in the meantime, you've got your, I mean, you sort of have a, a bird's eye a bird's eye view on this because of your chickens <laughs> yeah. in your backyard. You're, That's right. you're watching yep. out. David Walter Taves, thank you so much for your time. Happy to talk to you. 